this product. Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien. Today is Thursday the 30th of November 2017. Each fortnight we have a special guest in the fields of radio astronomy, optical astronomy, space science or particle physics. And this week our special guest is Dr Jacinta Del Hayes who's a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Zagreb in Croatia. She's researching the relationship between star formation and active galactic nuclei activity using new radio continuum data from Mayansky Very Large Array over the Cosmos field. And that's followed by Dr. Ian Musgrave of Astroblogger fame. Ian will tell us what's up, Doc, what's up in the night sky. But right now, let's cross over to the University of Zagreb in Croatia. Hello, Jacinta. Hello, Brendan. Today we are speaking with Dr. Jacinta Del Hayes, who is a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Zagreb, the Faculty of Science in Croatia. So, tell us about where you grew up as a child, please, Jacinta. How dark were the skies where you lived? And tell us a little about your school days and how you became interested in science and space and what prompted you to study the sciences? Sure. So I grew up in Mandurah, which is a town just south of Perth in Western Australia. And we actually had really nice dark skies there. I lived in the bushland a little bit away from the town. And you could really see the stars and it was very beautiful. I think I was always interested in space and astronomy and I'm not entirely sure what triggered it initially, but after a while, somebody bought me a book with photos from the Hubble Space Telescope. And if you've ever seen some pictures from Hubble, there's a lot of gorgeous photos of planetary nebula and galaxies and planets. And I just thought it was incredibly beautiful. In high school, when I started to study advanced maths and physics, A lot of the time, this can be a little dry because you really have to learn the basics before you can do anything practical with your skills. But I realized that it was helping me to understand what was going on in these pictures. So it really kind of opened up a whole new universe, basically, to me. And I thought this was really incredible and I wanted to know more. So that's why I decided to go on to university and study a Bachelor of Science with a major in physics and then eventually go on to do astronomy. Okay. Now, your first degree was a Bachelor of Science at the University of Western Australia. Did your BSc have astronomy components in it? And what inspired you to go on and do a PhD on top of that? 
Yeah, so I did a major in physics, and it was you know quite heavy on the physics, and we had a couple of astronomy units, but not so many. Actually, what inspired me to continue on were two things. Firstly, I received an internship from the Australian Astronomical Observatory, the AAO, to take this internship in Chile, where I went for three months, and. I got to work with researchers, astronomy researchers at the Gemini South Observatory. And this was my first experience of actual scientific research, which is very different to sort of your high school and your undergraduate degree where you're learning equations, you're learning how to deal with them, you're learning basic physical principles, but you're not actually applying them in any real way. You're not discovering anything new. And so I was studying a red giant star called Arcturus. And I was looking at adaptive optics imaging, so very high-quality, high-resolution imaging of this star to see if it had a companion star going around it. And I also got some time to go up to the Gemini South Observatory, which is a huge telescope on the top of a mountain in the Andes Mountains, and big eight-meter mirror. It was incredible. The night sky from up there on the mountain was just, you have to see it to believe it. You're looking right into the heart of the Milky Way. And the whole experience was absolutely wonderful, and I knew for sure that this is what I wanted to do, to have a career in astronomy. And the second thing that happened was suddenly our department at the University of Western Australia got some new astronomers coming in, some radio astronomers, and they were starting to set up for a future endeavour, the Square Kilometre Array, which we might talk a bit more about later. And this meant that there was actually a whole new department started called ICRA, the International Centre for Radio Astronomy Research between the University of Western Australia and Curtin University. And this meant that there was a lot of positions, a lot of funding, a lot of resources to really become an astronomer, to train to be an astronomer in my home state of Western Australia, which wasn't so much of a possibility before that. So I was really in the right place at the right time. Wow. Okay, so you're at the University of Western Australia and you became involved with ICRA the International Centre for Radio Astronomy Research, and then you were awarded your doctorate in astronomy and astrophysics for your study of how hydrogen gas, the most abundant substance in the universe, how it impacts on the evolution of galaxies. Now, a key part of your thesis was that you developed a stacking technique to overcome the problems of detecting weak hydrogen signals from distant galaxies. For our audience, please, can you describe how you developed this stacking technique using the Parks Dish data? And what was a big takeaway for you from doing a four-year PhD stint with ICRA? <laughs> sure. So uh, what I was trying to do was to detect, as you say, hydrogen gas in distant galaxies. Now, hydrogen gas is very important because it's the, the building block of the galaxy. It's the raw fuel for what stars form from. And this hydrogen gas actually emits radio light at 21 centimetres. So you can look at a ruler and you can measure 21 centimetres, and that's the wavelength of that light. Of course, light travels as a wave in some ways. And But the problem with detecting this hydrogen gas, this 21 centimetre signal, is that it's quite weak. So we can only detect it properly in galaxies that are quite close to us. But the challenge is actually to detect the hydrogen gas in galaxies that are further away. Because, of course, the deeper into space you look, the further back in time you can see. 
So we want to be able to study galaxies that are further away and therefore galaxies that existed earlier on in the history of the universe. And this will help us study how galaxies have changed over cosmic time from when they were formed after the Big Bang until now. This is what we call the study of galaxy evolution. So an important factor to know is how much hydrogen gas these earlier galaxies contained and therefore how many stars they could potentially form. So what I did, instead of looking at one galaxy for a very long time to be able to collect enough data, enough photons of this 21 centimetre light to detect it, we decided we didn't actually need to detect any signal. We can look at many different galaxies, each for a short amount of time, and detect nothing. And then we can combine these signals together at the positions of where the galaxy should be because we can actually see them at different wavelengths, such as in the optical light. And then what we get when we combine everything together or stack it together, is an average detection, a very strong average detection. Yep. So we can find average properties of the hydrogen gas content of these galaxies across cosmic time. And this ended up being quite a powerful technique that continues to be used in the field today. Yep. So I had a really great experience as a PhD student at ICRA, and it really helped me to, to set, the, set the platform for my, to launch my future career. Fantastic. Now, one of your sections in your early research also deals with using Herschel far infrared images of radio galaxies. Can you describe the Herschel instrument for us and how that optical data helps us understand the evolution of galaxies? Right, so the Herschel Space Observatory is a satellite that's up in space and it detects far infrared light. And it's the best of its kind for studying large patches of the sky. So it was launched in about 2009, and it was functioning until 2013, where its cryogenics, or its coolant, ran out. And so it, it basically it got too hot, and it couldn't function anymore. Yep. But it took so much data in that amount of time that astronomers are still using it for quite groundbreaking science. So when you detect far-infrared light from a galaxy, what you're actually seeing is the dust in yep. that galaxy. So you have massive stars forming inside the galaxy, and then these stars are releasing ultraviolet light. And then the dust that surrounds these stars actually absorbs the ultraviolet light and re-radiates as far-infrared light. So essentially, if you can detect the far-infrared light from a galaxy, you can tell how many stars are forming inside it. So you can study the star formation of the galaxy. Yep. And this more or less tells you how alive or active or how hardworking this galaxy is. Yep. Then what we want to do is to have a look at how this activity of galaxies has changed over the history of the universe. So if you think about a human being, a person, and how many hours a week they work in a job, when they're born, when they're babies, when they're children, they're not doing any work, of course. Yep. But then as they grow up into teenagers, they might do a few hours a week of casual employment. <laughs> and then as they get older, they're going to be working many hours a week. And then as they get even older, they're starting to get tired. They're working a few less hours a week until eventually they stop altogether. Yep. And actually, this is exactly what we see in galaxies. In the early universe, they weren't forming many stars. And then all of a sudden, they sped up and they were forming many, many stars. But then, after a while, something happened, and they started to kind of switch up a bit and form at a slower rate, and slower and slower. And 
well, in humans, it's our bodies that get old and tired, and that's why we slow down. But in galaxies, we don't really know what's going on. And so this is basically one of the fundamentals of the studies of galaxy evolution and, and why we're trying to look at galaxies at many different wavelengths and collect a lot of different information so that we can try and understand why there's this changing star formation rate. That is a beautiful analogy. That's amazing. Thanks, Jacinta. So after your PhD, you continued to work with ICRA doing outreach. Can you tell us what that entailed and why outreach is such an increasingly important component for researchers? Yeah, absolutely. So science communication, outreach, science popularisation, I think is really, really important. And that's because science affects our daily lives in so many ways. And it's really actually quite important for people, everybody, to have a base level of scientific literacy. And for a long time, there's been a stereotype around science and scientists that these are just for the, the nerdy people, the geeky people, the the brainiacs, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. I'm certainly proud to call myself one. But the point is that it's not just for people like this. It's actually for everyone, and it's really important that everyone is taught critical thinking and that they appreciate this. And so I think that scientists have a responsibility in some ways and also a privilege to explain to the public, to the media, to each other, and to policymakers what they're working on and why it's important because it really quite literally has the power to change the world. And in astronomy, I think we have a particularly powerful situation to do this, because I think at least everyone is, is at least a little bit fascinated by space, and everyone's kind of interested in it a little bit. So it's a really great hook to get people interested in science and technology. And so I try and uh, work in this as much as possible. And it's really great to see that funding bodies and people in the senior positions of science are really actually starting to encourage this and allowing their students and their postdocs to spend part of their time doing communication and outreach. For example, we've just a few weeks ago finished running a really large program of communication here in Croatia, where if you've heard of the Naked Scientist podcast before... Ah, um, Yeah, Dr. Chris Smith actually runs this podcast uh, with his team in Cambridge and he came across to visit us in Zagreb and we spent two days talking with policymakers in Croatia, with um, high school students, a big live show for the general public, the PhD students. And we were discussing science and science communication and why that's important and we really had a lot of fun. So this is the sort of thing I like to be involved in. Fantastic. Okay, now back to your career. Then you left the UWA and ICRA to do a postdoc, and as you mentioned, you're over in Croatia now. It's a huge move, and by postdoc we mean a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Zagreb in their Faculty of Science. First, can you tell us why and how that came about, and then how you've adapted to life in Zagreb and the language and the food and culture over there? Sure, yes. I think once you've finished your PhD, it's really good to get international experience as a young researcher if you have the opportunity to do so. This is important because you can grow your scientific networks, you can get different science opportunities. 
And from a personal level, it's also really great to just broaden your mind and experience different cultures, different languages. So I took a job opportunity at the University of Zagreb, which is the capital of Croatia. And I've been here for three and a half years already. Wow. Yeah, it's gone very quickly, but I've really loved it. Zagreb is a very safe environment, which is, of course, important for women. And I really appreciate that. It's a beautiful European city. The people are very friendly. And Croatia itself is absolutely gorgeous. It has mountains and lakes and waterfalls and, of course, the Adriatic Sea with all of the islands. So I've had a wonderful time exploring. And I think, yeah, it would be great if everyone got the chance to spend at least some time in a non-English-speaking country because you have much more appreciation for other languages and you notice the sort of advantage that we have as native English speakers because many fields such as science uh, function in English and if you actually have to spend part of your energy not just discussing science and the complex concepts involved but doing this in a different language that blows my mind and the people here I really have so much admiration for them functioning in different languages. So this has been a really, really amazing opportunity for me. Of course, it definitely has its challenges, being away from your friends and family, being in a different culture with a different language is very challenging, but for me, it's been absolutely worth it. That's awesome. Okay, well, back to your research. You're currently looking at how black holes at the centre of galaxies can affect star formation, and you're using data from Majansky, Uyangsky VLA. Could you describe this array of radio telescopes and just how your current research is going along, please, Jacinta? Absolutely. So the Jansky VLA stands for the Carl G. Jansky, who was a famous radio astronomer. And then VLA stands for the Very Large Array. Astronomers are not particularly creative in naming their telescopes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But this telescope (laughs) is in New Mexico in the USA. And it's not just one dish. So so a radio telescope, you might have seen one before. It looks like a giant satellite dish. And what's special about the VLA is it's not just one dish. It's actually several connected together in a technique called interferometry. And this makes it much more powerful. It gives us a very good resolution. So what we did with the VLA, because actually anybody can use it, you don't need to be in the USA to use it, our team at the University of Zagreb, along with our international collaborators, ran a 400-hour survey with the VLA. So we studied a particular patch of sky called Cosmos. And we stared at this patch of sky for 400 hours, and we made a radio map. We call this the VLA Cosmos 3 gigahertz large project. Yep. What we did is we combined this radio map with other maps of the same patch of sky, taking a different wavelength at optical, at the X-rays, in, in the infrared, such as with the Herschel telescope that we talked about earlier. And we did all of this to study different aspects of galaxy evolution. And one thing you can see in radio light, you can see several things, but one thing is the signatures of active black holes. So where you have a black hole at the center of a galaxy, and it has gas and dust falling into it, big clouds of gas and dust. And as it's orbiting around, it's getting hot due to friction. Just as if you rub your hands together very quickly, they get warm. This gas and dust is rubbing together so, so much that it's getting extremely hot 
Yep. And it's releasing a lot of light. And in fact, this is one of the most energetic objects in the entire universe. This is called an AGN, an active galactic nucleus. And in some cases, we're not exactly sure why, but in some cases, the black hole or something close to the black hole is releasing jets of radio light, beams. Yep. If you think about a ball, a black ball, and there's a beam of light coming from the top of it and a beam of light coming from the bottom, and this light is in the radio, this radio light actually has an energy associated with it. And we think that it might be doing something called radio mode feedback. There are different names for this, but one name is radio mode feedback. It may actually be blowing some of the gas out of the galaxy or heating up the gas in the galaxy which means that it can't form stars. The, the gas has to be in the galaxy and it has to be cold in order to form stars. Right. This is why it's important to study radio mode feedback in galaxies so that this might be one clue as to why galaxies are changing their star formation rate over the history of the universe. Fantastic. That's amazing. Now, the idea of lone scientists having brilliant ideas as they toil away on their own in a lab, it's a very common one, yet the reality is quite different. Could you tell us about some of the collaborations you're currently working on? You just mentioned Cosmos. That's your current collaboration? Yeah, that's right. I'm happy to say that science is a very collaborative venture. We... We work as, collaborate, as collaborators on a diff, number of different levels. So, for example, I work as part of a research team or group at the University of Zagreb where we have one professor leading our team. We have three postdocs and three PhD students. And we all work together to publish our particular set of papers. But we also work together on an international team, which is even larger. So, for example, one of the teams I work as part of is Cosmos, which I mentioned before. And this is a team of more than 200 astronomers over more than 20 countries and many different continents, such as Asia, Europe, America. And the reason why we work together is to share our expertise and our data. We actually have way too much data for any one person or even any one research team to be able to process and to be able to understand. And so we pull our resources together. So some astronomers might be experts in using optical data, other people might be experts in using radio data. And so we share our data, we teach each other how to use it, we compare it. One person might be an expert on the very high redshift universe. Yep. One person might be an expert on the environments of galaxy. And if you only have one piece of the puzzle, you can't see the full picture. But each person is holding a different piece of the puzzle and we try and put them all together so that we can see the full picture. And this is why it's important to collaborate in science. Fantastic. And we see a lot of collaborations now happening between observational scientists and theoretical scientists. And the interplay between those two groups is just wonderful. That's exactly right. And that's what's really making it an exciting time to be working in astronomy at the moment. Okay. So radio astronomy has been a big part of your research. And there are many amazing instruments like parks, siding springs, fast. Arecibo, Chime, Malongo, to mention just a very few. Are you keeping your eye on the SKA and do you think that's going to be a game changer or is it just a part of the whole mosaic? It's going to be a huge game changer. 
So the SKA is the Square Kilometre Array Telescope, and this is planned to be built in the near future, partly in southern Africa and partly in Australia. So there will be two types of telescopes associated with the one larger telescope. One is the high-frequency aspect, so these telescopes are going to look like dishes, like the Parkes Radio Telescope, like the Jansky VLA, and the other part of the telescope is going to be low-frequency, so it can detect low-frequency radio waves. And these might look like upside-down metal umbrellas or like metal spiders. <laughs> the design phase is still underway. But this telescope is going to completely revolutionise radio astronomy. It will be very powerful, very sensitive, very fast. We expect to detect millions more galaxies than we can currently see. And we might even be able to detect the first stars and galaxies that formed after the Big Bang in the very early universe. And, of course, this is also going to boost um, supercomputer facilities because currently the technology doesn't even exist to be able to run and power the SKA, not to mention to store and process the data. The SKA will create one exobyte of information each day. That's 10 to the 18 bytes. So one with 18 zero behind it bytes of information. Now, as of a few years ago, it was nearly a year's worth of worldwide internet traffic. And the SKA will produce this in one day. So the SKA is working together with big businesses such as IBM and other industries in order to generate the infrastructure and the facilities that will be needed for the SKA. And of course, you can imagine that if you have supercomputers, this can be applied to many other fields and be useful to many other aspects of life. Fantastic. Now, we've got amazing research projects happening all over the place. And now we have the emerging science of gravitational wave astronomy. It must be such an exciting time for you and such a wide range of researchers. What's next for you personally? Is it possible to describe a career path for astronomers? Well, I would like to continue research along the lines of what the Square Kilometre Array, the SKA, will do. Now, this is a bit of a longer-term project, a longer-term telescope. It will be hopefully built by about 2025 or maybe just after. But what's really exciting for the shorter term is that there are two precursor or pathfinder telescopes being built. One is Meerkat in South Africa and one is ASCAP, the Australian SKA Pathfinder in Western Australia. And these telescopes will be switched on within the next one to two years. And they're only between, let's say, 1% to 10% the size of the SKA. But even in themselves, they will still be the world's most powerful radio telescopes by a lot. And so we can already start to do groundbreaking new science with these instruments. So this is what I would like to get on board with and to continue an exciting science career in this direction. Is it possible to describe a career path for astronomers? Well, yes and no. There are many, many different flavors, many different directions you can go in. But a typical example would be to do a PhD, which takes about four years, then to go maybe internationally or maybe across the country to do a postdoctoral research position, maybe one, maybe two, maybe three, and then eventually we end up with a permanent position somewhere. So keep your fingers crossed for me, Brendan. I certainly will, Jacinta. Okay. Now, the microphone is all yours, Jacinta, and you have the opportunity to give us your favourite rant or rave about the challenges we face in science, in education, 
in equity, in outreach, in our quest for knowledge of space. The mic's all yours. Yeah, you might be interested in pursuing careers in non-traditional fields, whether that's science and engineering or something different. I would really just say to do what you love, even though there may not seem like so many job prospects at the time when you start studying. You really don't know what's going to happen. You don't know which direction life takes you in. And if you really want something, you actually can do it. You don't actually need to be the best. Obviously, it's good to have some natural skills in whatever area you're interested in, but you don't actually need to be the best in order to be successful. I mean, for example, I wasn't actually the ducks of my high school. I was one of the top students, but I wasn't the ducks. I was a good student in undergraduate, but I wasn't the best. And I think there is always, always going to be somebody better than you somewhere. But it doesn't mean that you don't have a very valuable role to play in your field and that you can't succeed. You absolutely can. And you should value all of your skills. For example, science is actually highly creative. And people don't really realize that. People are trained to do science, but not to be scientists. Yep. For example, I have danced my whole life. I've done ballet since I was six years old. I do swing dancing. I do tango. And that taught me confidence and confidence in front of other people. And this has been absolutely invaluable in my career because I am confident in speaking in conferences in front of other audiences. And that actually helps stand out a little bit. So value all of your skill set and try to fight imposter syndrome. Now, imposter syndrome is where you don't really believe that you deserve to be where you are in the job that you are. You don't really think you deserve to get a PhD position. You don't really think you deserve to be called a real scientist. And actually, you're not alone if you think this. Almost everybody thinks this in some way. And they're trying to get by and hope that nobody notices that they're the real imposter. But try and just have confidence in yourself. Know that this is a thing. And just keep going. And that's my messages. Fantastic, Jacinta. You've joined a lot of dots there and you've shone a light not only on research but on what it means to be a scientist and a researcher. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Dr. Jacinta Del Hayes, Galactic Evolution Researcher Extraordinaire. It's been great speaking with you. Thanks, Brendan. It's been a really great time chatting to you. Good on you. Bye now. See you, Brendan. Now, listeners can keep up to date with Jacinta's research and outreach work. She has an excellent YouTube video where you can see her describe her research on the infrared radio correlation of galaxies. And you can get that at tinyearl.com forward slash jdelhaze, J-D-E-L-H-A-I-Z-E. Her website is at jacintadelhaze.com. And she also has a public Twitter and Instagram account. Both are at Hayes. And now we cross to Adelaide to speak with Dr. Ian Astroblog Musgrave. Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. How's things going? Have you been struck by lightning yet? No, we've got a bit of a thunderstorm approaching, but hopefully it won't interfere with our recording tonight. Okay, fantastic. Okay then, Ian, 
tell us what's up in the sky this week. Well, sadly, tragically, not very much. For those of you who have been following the bright planets, most of them have now vanished from our evening sky and some of the brighter ones are accumulating in the morning sky but deep in the twilight. However, if you're out in the early evening this week and you look towards the western horizon between half an hour and an hour after the sun has set, you'll be able to see Saturn and Mercury together. Now, if you've been watching Saturn and Mercury over the weeks, you'll have seen them doing a quite nice dance. The stars of the Scorpion, the crescent moon last week, and now the pair are coming closer. And as of tonight, they're at their closest. Now, of course, this recording won't go out for another couple of days. In that time, Mercury will draw away from Saturn, but then the pair will start falling back towards the horizon and dimming. And then by the end of the week, possibly a week and a half, they'll be really deep in the twilight and very difficult to see. Yep. And this is a little bit sad because it's the evening sky devoid of uh, bright planets. Although if you're uh, up for searching for Uranus or Neptune, you can still find them in the evening sky, but they're nowhere near as spectacular. On the other hand, as if to make up for this, we have the constellation of Orion and Taurus and the Pleiades rising earlier and earlier in the evening. And if you're up in the late evening, the sight of the mythological hunter and its companions will be a very pleasant sight. You'll have to wait a little bit longer for the amazing cluster that can be seen in the constellation Carina. will be a lot easier to see, but that's coming. Oh, very good. Okay, now if we turn our attention to the morning skies, Venus is now completely lost to sight. It's been our companion for many months and brightening the morning sky. Even when it was very low to the horizon, its brightness was such that you could pick it up even quite late in the twilight. But now it's far into the twilight to see. Uh, on the other hand, Mars and Jupiter are rising out of the twilight. You still have to look a half an hour before sunrise, but now they're much easier to see. In fact, you can see Mars without binoculars at the moment. Now, if you watch the pair over the coming week, you might see them coming close to a couple of bright stars. I say bright moderately advisedly, even though these stars are relatively bright, they're going to be a bit hard to see in the twilight. But if you watch Mars, Mars will be coming close to the bright star speaker. This is the brightest star in Virgo the constellation of the Virgin, and on the 29th it will be at its closest, but it'll still be quite close for the next couple of days, and the pair will make a a nice sight in the early twilight or sunrise. Jupiter uh, is coming close to the bright pair of stars, Alpha Librae. However, Alpha Librae is a, a bit deep in the twilight to see easily this week, but by next week, it should be coming out of the horizon and uh, and Jupiter's now relatively easy to see. And by the end of next week, we should see the pair coming close together and that will look very nice in the morning sky. Fantastic. And now I've been listening to you for close on 18 months now and I'm starting to get a handle on some of the things that you're talking about. Does the fact that Venus is disappearing from our morning sky mean that it's soon going to start appearing in our evening sky? Well, it depends what you mean by the definition of soon. 
<laughs> Venus will appear in the morning sky, but we won't be able to see it until 2018. And it'll be a little while before it's high enough in the sky in, in 2018 to be really quite spectacular. But yes, uh, Venus will, will once again become the evening star in 2018. We look forward to seeing that. And some nice encounters between Venus and the crescent moon and uh, other bright planets uh, later on in the year. When it first appears, Venus will be featureless disk, but by uh, the middle of next year, we should start seeing it uh, putting on its more half and crescent moon phases, so that will be quite beautiful to watch through telescopes later on in the year. So we're looking forward to Venus. Something we can look forward to um, next year too is we're going to have an opposition of Mars Mars is at opposition approximately every two years, and that's uh, where its biggest and brightest is seen from Earth. And uh, Mars, because of the way Mars' orbit works out and the timing of where Mars comes uh, closest to the Sun versus when Earth is closest to the Sun, uh, Mars has been very unfavourable for a while and its disk has been very tiny. But uh, this year will be uh, one of the best oppositions for several years. And so uh, people watching Mars through that telescope will be able to see a quite decent disc this year. Oh, so that means we can also look forward to seeing those memes appear on Facebook where Mars is going to be bigger than the full moon. Yes, we can look forward to them yet again. They come across every <laughs> August because that was when it was last uh, really, really um, big in telescopes. But yes... Uh, we'll see that again, and it won't. It will once again not line up with when Mars has its opposition, but then we'll all, all chuckle mightily. But I tell you what's coming up in opposition, yep. and that is the interesting asteroid three thousand and two hundred Phaethon. Now, this is a very interesting asteroid. It's the parent body of the Geminid meteor shower. I'll talk about the Geminids and uh, in a, a bit more detail in our next podcast because the Geminids will be at their brightest around the 14th of December and should put on a really good show this year. So by the, actually by the end of this fortnight, our next podcast is about to come out, you should start seeing some Geminids coming through, although it will be really better about a week after that. So just before you go any further, Ian... Yep. I should tell you that this episode is probably going to be our last episode for this year because in two weeks I'm taking my family over to Europe for a month. And so we'll be taking a break from Astrophys from this episode until late January, I'm afraid. I'll be doing some recording over there, but we'll really be taking a break for six weeks all up over the Christmas period, so perhaps now you could give us a heads up on the oh, Geminids. Well, I certainly would, because as you're going to be touring around Europe, you'll have a far better view of the Geminids than we will have in Australia. Now, the Geminids are uh, one of the most reliable meteor showers that can be seen from both the northern and the southern hemispheres. The zenithal hourly rate is the theoretical number of meteors you could see if you if the point of where the meteors were coming from was directly overhead, you're under dark sky sights and you had no obstructions around you, is about 120. Yep. Now, of course, the Gemini uh, radius never gets that high in Australia and there's always something on the horizon getting in the way, so we see far fewer. But 
This year, the Gemini is going to occur during the new moon. If you're in a dark sky site in the south of Australia, you'll probably see about a meteor every three to four minutes. Yep. If you're around about the latitude of Brisbane, you could see potentially see a meteor every one to two minutes. And if you're up in Darwin, you could possibly see a meteor every minute if all things are well. Uh, right. Again, this assumes you've got a fairly level horizon. There's yep. not too many trees or things in the way cutting out the meteors and no giants, street lights blinding you so you can't see the faint, uh, the faint meteors. So, so this thing is going to be a good year for Gemini. So that, uh, that, that's for the peak on the morning of the 14th. Unlike some meteor showers like the Leonids, where the meteors uh, are very narrowly focused in time at the peak, the Geminids uh, have a broad peak, and so you'll be able to see some decent meteors before that and on day after that but not too much more outside of that time. Now, the Geminids may have a, uh, a later peak. The art of determining where the dust clouds that are, have been released from the parent body are in relationship to the Earth is uh, a quite difficult computation. But there's a possibility that some of the earlier released dust clouds uh, might impact uh, Earth a bit later, and there's, a, there's potential to have a secondary peak uh, a day or so after the main peak. So maybe worth a while looking for the next couple of days. But certainly around about the, the second December the 14th, either the even on the night itself, which unfortunately is a Thursday uh, morning, which is a, a week morning, and both the 13th and the 15th are also week mornings. So if you're feeling like getting up at 1 to 2 o'clock in the morning, you know, probably the best around from about 3.30 or so. Uh, that's daylight saving time and 2.30 if you're on not on daylight saving time. That would be a really good time to, to get up and watch for the meteors. Again, I emphasise that you need to have your eyes dark adapted, especially if you've got the fainter meteorites. So you just can't walk out, out of uh, your, your living room into your backyard, look up and say, whoa. I can't see any meals, they mustn't be there. You yep. have to be there for at least five minutes to get your eyes used to the sky. And the radiant of the meteor shower is just below the bright stars, Castor and Pollux. They're really easy. If you look to the north, you'll see two uh, bright stars paired together, one of them uh, bright yellow, and that's Castor. If you're looking to the north, you'll see the uh, pair of bright stars almost directly north. And... The brightest one is Pollux, below it is, uh, is Castor, and just below Castor is the radiant of the Geminids. And, and off to your uh, left will be uh, Orion and uh, Taurus. So don't stare fixedly at that spot, because the that's where the meteors appear to come from. They actually start their burn on either side of that point. So let your eye wander around. Uh, look to the left, look to the right, look up, and you should see some really nice uh, meteors. So just as long, if you're just generally, if you're just looking north and letting your eyes wander to the east and west and up, you should be able to see some quite decent meteors. Fantastic, and we should give a shout out right now to our friends Guy Wells and Daniel Bamberger. They're currently tracking asteroid Phaeton and they've got it at magnitude 14 at the moment which is very dim 
but apparently it's brightening and getting brighter and brighter. Indeed, and as I mentioned, it will come to opposition uh, around about the 13th as seen from Australia, approximately the day before the peak Geminids as seen from Australia. Well, it'll be around about magnitude uh, between 10.8 to 10.5, depending. So it'll be bright enough to be seen in moderate amateur telescopes. It won't be really hiking along, but it'll be moving enough to be able to see it. Uh, unfortunately, it's going to be quite low, and it'll be just above the constellation of Andromeda. Now, you may also have seen somewhere on the internet uh, a range of breathless articles saying, it will just whiz past us. Well, it's going past the 0.07 astronomical units, which is a, a lot further away than the distance between us and the moon. So on an astronomical scale, of course, that's fairly close. But on the scale of our, of our local Earth-Moon system, it's pretty far away. So it's nowhere near as those articles will have, have, have you mentioned. But it's also but it's good from the point of view it makes it easy for us to pick it up. Now, I mentioned that uh, Phaedron's an interesting object. Unlike the majority of the uh, meteor showers, it's an asteroid, not a comet. Yep. Most meteor showers can be tracked back to a parent comet, uh, and the, the meteor shower we see are the dust and debris that's been left from behind from the comet's tail as the comet is heated up by the sun. But Phaedron is an asteroid, not a comet. But it's an unusual comet that comes very close and comes within the orbit of Mercury very close to the sun. In one way, it's called a sun-raising asteroid, even though it, it's, it doesn't get as close as the true sun-raising comet. And what we think is happening is the heat of the sun, because it's so much closer to the sun and Mercury, is causing the asteroid surface to heat up and crack and fragments just fall off. So you're getting this trail of dust left behind with the uh, asteroid, even though it's not icy. Um, in fact, the last time it came uh, close to the sun, the spacecraft was able to um, see a small tail develop as it swung around the sun, and uh, Stereo and, and Soho will be looking very carefully at asteroids that goes past to see if we can pick up tails again, although the geometry of Stereo may not be optimum for Phaedon this year. That is so cool, Ian. Now, and I said, it's so hot. <laughs> it's so hot, it's cool. Awesome. Now, Ian, do you have a tangent for us this week, or was the Geminids your tangent? Uh, the tangent my, of my, this week is the 50th anniversary of the launch of RACESAT. Ah, and, yes. And, that, 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 and this is on the 29th of November, probably the day before this will go out, is uh, the 29th of November back in 1967 when uh, RACESAT was launched. Now, RACESAT stands for the Weapons Research Establishment Satellite, and with the launch of that satellite, Australia became the third developed nation to have designed and built uh, and launched a satellite of its own. Uh, so that was our entry to the space race. Other, uh, other nations had uh, launched satellites before us, so we weren't the third satellite launcher, but we were the third uh, group to actually design, build, and launch from our own soil. Yep. A, a satellite. And we did this with the help of a, a, a rocket we borrowed off the Americans and rejigged, and we completely built the uh, the satellite itself. So although uh, Woomera had been in operation uh, since 1947, 
and uh, they've been uh, involved in rocket launches since about uh, 1957. This was the first satellite we launched where we actually got into Earth orbit and stayed there for some time. And this year uh, is the year of the 70th anniversary of Woomera and the 50th anniversary of uh, SpaceX. Space is really important. Australia um, depends a lot on satellites because of the size of the country, the remoteness, uh, and for our military and uh, civilian activities, satellites have been indispensable. And yet we, um, uh, after the launch of RACAC, um Successive governments have, have ignored our capabilities and instead of having a uh, Australian uh, satellite launch capacity, we are utterly dependent on other nations for our satellite capability and, our, and that includes weather satellites, uh, communications satellites uh, and a whole uh, range of other satellite-based uh, uh, based issues. So it's, a, it's, it's really sad. The other thing we were involved in quite early on was X-ray astronomy through the uh, use of sounding rockets. Australia was at the forefront of X-ray astronomy, helping them to understand the X-ray solar corona. Uh, this is through the Skylark sounding rockets. These never got into orbit, but got high enough so they could be above the uh, X-ray absorbing atmosphere and be able to study the X-rays from astronomical sources before the packages fell back to Earth. So Australia, until around about 1979, Australia played an important role in a range of space activities. It's a bit sad to, we had this fantastic opportunity and we threw it away. That's my tangent for this week. Well, thank you very much, Ian Astroblog Musgrave. It's been great to speak with you again. And thank you, Dr. Brennan, for giving me the opportunity to uh, speak and to share the joy of the sky and uh, hopefully get a few people out watching the Geminids this year. Okay, watch out for the Geminids. No worries. Here is the Astro News for Thursday, the 30th of November, 2017. Our first story today is from the CSIRO Scope blog, published on Wednesday, the 29th of November. The title is ASCAP Helps Us to See More of Our Intergalactic Neighbour by Gabby Russell. The galaxy sweet galaxy that we call home, the Milky Way, is comprised of about 200 to 400 billion stars. A dwarf galaxy, on the other hand, is one that has about 100 million, up to several billion stars. In fact, one of our closest neighbours is a dwarf galaxy, the Small Magellanic Cloud, and our new Australian Square Kilometre Array Pathfinder Telescope, ASCAP, has just made the most detailed radio image of it yet. The Small Magellanic Cloud is 100 times smaller than the Milky Way and orbits our galaxy once every 1.5 billion years. You can see it with your own eyes if you're away from city lights. It looks like a faint cloud among the Milky Way's stars. Unlike optical telescopes such as the Hubble Space Telescope that collects visible light, radio telescopes use radio waves to form a picture and reveal otherwise hidden details in space. This new image was snapped 
using ASCAP's fast imaging radio cameras known as phased array feeds that we talked about a couple of episodes ago. It reveals the galaxy's vibrant history, including streams of hydrogen gas reeled in by the gravitational pull of our own Milky Way galaxy, and billowing voids generated by massive stars that exploded millions of years ago. Professor Naomi McClure-Griffiths from the ANU Research School of Astronomy and Astrophysics, who jointly led the work with Professor John Dickey of the University of Tasmania, says, The new image shows that the small Magellanic Cloud's very dynamic past can be used to predict its future. As you heard earlier in this episode, hydrogen is a fundamental building block of all galaxies and shows off the more extended structure of a galaxy than its stars and dust. The outlook for this dwarf galaxy is not good. It is likely to eventually be gobbled up by our Milky Way. According to Dr. Phil Edwards, who we interviewed in our previous episode, he's the leader of the CSIRO Astronomy Science Program, this is just a taste of what's to come. This stunning new image, he said, showcases the wide field of view of the ASCAP telescope. The depth of our images will only get better when the full array comes online next year. Our next story today is an interesting example of how optical astronomers and radio astronomers can work in parallel, because this story is also about the Magellanic Clouds. It's a media release from the Australian Astronomical Observatory, The Lost Stars of the Magellanic Clouds. Using the Anglo-Australian Telescope, the AAT, an international team of astrophysicists has confirmed the existence of stars in the Magellanic Bridge, a gaseous structure connecting the two Magellanic Clouds. These lost stars were stripped from the small Magellanic Cloud by the gravitational pull of the Large Magellanic Cloud in a recent nearby encounter. Although when astronomers say recent, they mean something different. Our galaxy, the Milky Way, has two small satellite galaxies around it, the Magellanic Clouds. Only visible from the Southern Hemisphere, the Small Magellanic Cloud, the SMC, and the Large Magellanic Cloud, known as the LMC, seem to be isolated objects. However, they are actually connected by a large gaseous structure, the Magellanic Bridge. The material of that bridge has been stripped from the Magellanic Clouds as a consequence of strong gravitational interactions between the two small galaxies and the Milky Way. Using the 3.9-metre Anglo-Australian Telescope, the AAT, located at Siding Spring Observatory in Coonabarabran in Australia, and managed by the Australian Astronomical Observatory, an international team of astrophysicists has confirmed for the first time the detection of stars within the Magellanic Bridge. To make this exciting discovery, astronomers used the AAT's 2DF robot together with the AA Omega spectrograph to measure around 1,500 stars in that region of the sky. The 2DF robot, which is pioneer in its class, 
allows us to simultaneously observe 400 objects in a region of the sky with a diameter of four full moons. This makes it possible to obtain high-quality data for thousands of stars in just a few nights, says Dr. Angel Lopez Sanchez, AAO astronomer and member of a research team who we have also interviewed in a previous episode. The observations at the AAT were made possible thanks to the Opticon program from the European Union, which allows European astronomers to access facilities in other countries, such as the AAT, said Dr. Ricardo Carrera, researcher at the Instituto de Astrofisica de Canarias, the IAC Canary Islands Institute of Astronomy, and first author of the study. The AAT observations revealed that some stars within the region where the Magellanic Bridge is located are not moving with the Milky Way. Instead, the movement of these stars agrees with that of the gas of the Magellanic Bridge. The researchers discovered that these lost stars are very old, born between 1 and 10 billion years ago. Magellanic Bridge itself was only formed about 200 million years ago, much more recently than the stars associated with it, meaning that the lost stars were actually born within the LMC or the SMC and later stripped from the galaxies. Furthermore, the spectroscopic data provided by the AAT have also been used to estimate the chemical composition of the lost stars found within the Magellanic Bridge. Combining both the kinematics and the chemical composition of the stars, we can unequivocally conclude that these stars were actually born in the SMC, said Dr. Ricardo. Galaxy interactions and mergers were very common in the early universe, and they are still happening today. Indeed, galaxy evolution is largely dominated by these encounters. Galaxy interactions can distort or even drastically change the morphology of the galaxies. During these encounters, there is an interchange of material between the galaxies. New star-forming regions are created, and frequently, the gas and stars are also stripped into the space between galaxies called the intergalactic medium, says Dr. Angel Lopez Sanchez. And the results of this research, published in the journal Monthly Notices of the Royal Astronomical Society, provide key clues about the mechanisms involved during galaxy interactions. So that's it for Astrophys for this episode. And... We'll be back again after my delightful trip to Europe round about late January 2018. Have a wonderful festive season, everyone. Bye now. Radio Wave.